You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you have your Bible, maybe you'd turn to the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is there in Matthew 18, which is the parable that uh, we are going to be looking at uh, this evening. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ Throughout his ministry, he sought to continually teach his followers. The way he did that was rather than uh, mass evangelism, although he did speak to the crowds, but the, the way that he set up to prepare the church was he took a group of men and he poured his life into their lives for three years. And he spent time with them, teaching them, teaching them, sometimes um, encouraging them, teaching them sometimes by rebuking them, teaching them often by example. And throughout all this time of his public ministry, he's acutely aware of the fact that the evil one is constantly trying to undermine his work. And one of the most effective ways that Satan uses is to bring dissension and division among God's people. That is, his strategy, the strategy of Satan is to divide and conquer. So the Lord teaches them uh, here to be open and honest with each other and to confess their sins and to seek forgiveness. And that's what's covered there in verses 15 to 20 where if a brother has a problem with another one, he should go and speak to him individually. If that doesn't resolve the issue, then he should take two or three other people along with him and again try to make this person see sense. And if that doesn't work, then bring it to the church. And if that doesn't work, then he should be put out of the fellowship. And it must be said that if those instructions were followed in our local congregations, I believe we would see most of the personal problems being resolved. Very often, in my experience, I've found it when there is a difficulty between individuals in congregations, very often, rather than grasping the nettle and going to see the person and speaking to them and find out what the problem is, it's left to fester and fester and fester until it becomes an enormous problem. Indeed, if these instructions were followed as they're laid out for us there in Scripture, uh, we would have little use for a judicial commission. You know we have a judicial commission in the church that if there's a problem in a congregation and somebody appeals to presbytery, presbytery can either fine for the appellant or against him. The appellant can then appeal if he doesn't, if he's not happy with it, to judicial commission and they're the final authority. And they have had to deal with some horrendous problems over the years. Now, we're no different from any other denomination. Every other denomination is exactly the same. And it's how you deal with these problems uh, that are in fellowships. So the the first step in solving a personal difference is to go to the person who uh, has offended you and keep the matter private. If that doesn't work, go back again and so on. Here, Peter has a problem. He says in uh, the beginning there in verse 
21, he says, How often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Important to note Peter's uh, attitude here. He assumes that his brother would sin against him rather than vice versa, because let's be honest, sometimes we're the guilty party. Sometimes we're guilty of sinning against our brother. But Peter's saying, if my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Up to seven times? Uh, he, wants to, he wants to put a limit on forgiveness. He wants to say, now, where are the barriers here? Where, where are the limits as far as forgiveness is concerned? I want you to set a limit. And Jesus said, seven times? up to 70 times, or 70 times 7. In other words, who would count that many offenses? Well, that's, that's, that's the point. You wouldn't count that many offenses. You would, you would just move on. You would forget about that. Indeed, Paul writing to the Corinthians in that lovely chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, what does he say? Love keeps no record of wrongs. That was often the chapter... I would have turned to when I was preparing couples for marriage. And I would say, you know, I want you to notice this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, those of us who have been married a while, how's that worked out? If I'm spared to September, I'll be married 50 years by the grace of God. I was only 10 when I got married. But, <laughs> but 50 years. But love keeps no record of wrongs. But the truth is, we often do. You know, when our better half does something that annoys us, well, we remember that. We say, I forgive you, but we remember it. And then we cast it up sometime when we're in the wrong. And we say, ah, but you... Love keeps no record of wrongs. By the time we've forgiven a brother 70 times 7, we're in the habit of forgiving. And Jesus wasn't encouraging a careless or shallow forgiveness. Uh, there cannot... True forgiveness is based on what he teaches here in verses 15 to 20. There can't be true forgiveness unless sin is confessed and dealt with. It has to be confessed and dealt with. Let me say that again. There cannot be true forgiveness unless sin is confessed and dealt with. Forgiveness is not cheap. It costs God his son so that he would be able to forgive us, so that he could still be just a just God and forgive guilty sinners. If you forgive someone who's guilty then you're not just. That's, that's the dilemma. But God can do that because someone else has paid the price. And that's what happened when the Lord died on the cross for us. This parable which Jesus told illustrates the power of forgiveness. It, it's important to note that this parable is not about salvation. Because as you know, salvation is all about grace. And it is unconditionally given. The parable deals with forgiveness between brothers, not between lost sinners and God. 
So the whole emphasis is on brother forgiving brother. And I want us to look at the main character in the parable and to see the main lesson. So first of all, I want to look at the main character. And there are three stages that the main character went through. And you'll see it there in the, in the parable before us. First of all, I want you to notice that he was a debtor. Look at uh, verses 23 to 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had, uh, that all he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. So first of all, he's a debtor. He owes an immense amount of money. Immense now. Uh, here's someone who's been caught with his hand in the till. When the books were audited, his crimes discovered. And to get some extent of the crime, the, the total tax levy for Palestine at that time was about 800 talents per annum. So you can see how dishonest he was. He owed 10,000 talents. Modern-day equivalent of about 5 million pounds. This man actually thought he could get out of debt. Verse 26, give me time and I'll pay it all back to you. And we see two sins here, pride and a lack of sincere repentance. The man is not ashamed because he stole the money. He's ashamed because he's been caught stealing the money. And he actually thought that he was big enough to earn the money to repay the king. In, in those days, a man would have to work 20 years to earn one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. His case was absolutely hopeless, except for one thing. The king was a man of compassion. The king assumed the loss. The king forgave the servant. The man was set free. He didn't deserve it. It was an act of love and mercy on the part of the king. So we're looking at the main character. First of all, he was a debtor. But then secondly, he was a creditor. If you look at verses 28 to 30. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. He's a creditor. He was owed a hundred pence. A hundred pence. The debtor used the same approach as the servant. He appeals for mercy. Give me time and I'll pay you back there in verse 29. But he was unwilling. Perhaps he had a legal right to throw the man in prison, but he didn't have any moral right. He had been forgiven himself. Should he not forgive his fellow servant? So the main character was first of all a debtor. Secondly, he was a creditor. And thirdly, he became a prisoner. Verse 31 and following. Verse 
31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. He became a prisoner. The king originally delivered him from prison, but the servant put himself back in prison. It's like the king says to him, so you want to live by justice? Then justice you shall have. And he throws him into prison. One of the world's worst prisons, I believe, is not made by human hands. I've been to a few prisons in my time. Well, two, actually. One in Armagh and the other Alcatraz. Such a difference between the two. But they're both, they were both horrible, horrible places. But a worse prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we're only imprisoning ourselves and we're causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people in the world are people who will not forgive others. They become embittered and that ends up eating them up and they're punishing themselves. You, you see it, listen. I, one of the places you see this is in the world of politics. Do you ever notice politicians who are cast aside or they're the victims of some coup? And boy, there's a lot of resentment. I'm old enough to remember people like Ted Heath when Maggie Thatcher took over. Oh, looks could kill. Or Michael Heseltine, same kind of attitude. You younger people have no idea who I'm talking about, but those are people who were prominent in politics. You see it in local politics too. Look at the whole debacle at the end of Dr. Paisley's time in the DUP and the bitterness that, that came out at that time. Now, obviously, in the parable before us, there was something wrong with the forgiven servant's heart, and that's the major emphasis of the story here. So we've looked at the main character. Then I want to look, secondly, at the meaning of the parable. As we said, Jesus is teaching his disciples here about forgiveness. And we see here three levels of forgiveness. First of all, there's receiving forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness. I forgive you all that debt, the king says to the servant. The servant got up. He walked out of the king's presence free of debt. Absolutely a free man. He had received forgiveness. Now, as I said, this forgiveness was not cheap. His king had lost a great deal of money. His king had lost 10,000 talents. That was a huge amount of money which could never be paid back. The servant didn't earn the pardon. He deserved to be punished for what he had done. The forgiveness the man received was a result of the king's compassionate heart. 
Now, folks, if an earthly fallen king can do that, how much more does our Father in heaven forgive us whenever we come to him in repentance and faith? Think about how much we owe him. Just think about it. How much we owe him. Every sin. Every act of disobedience makes a person that much more obligated to God. Every sinful thought. People, you, me, are in debt to God. And he expects that to be covered, that debt to be covered. But the truth is that sinners are bankrupt. They cannot pay. If people are forgiven at all, it's because God assumes the loss. It's because God pays the debt. It's because God graciously grants salvation. Isn't that why he sent his son into the world? Isn't that why the angels rejoiced at his birth? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You will call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came to save us by by satisfying the justice of God and displaying the love of God. But the forgiveness that God grants is not temporary or conditional. It's free, and it is eternal. And if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have received forgiveness then your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are cast into the sea of his forgetfulness. But it begs the question, have you received that forgiveness? Have you received it from God? Now, it's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you deserve. It it is a gift from God to those who receive his son. Forgiveness is not deserved. So don't come to God and tell him how good you are and how deserving you are or how you'll pay him back by the good life that you're going to live. There's receiving forgiveness. But then secondly, there's experiencing forgiveness. Receiving a gift is one thing, but it's quite another matter to have the gift do something to your heart. The fact that we've been forgiven ought to make us better people in every way. Not just, not just a, a past experience, but a present experience in daily reality. That, that you are someone who is forgiven in the here and now. And surely there ought to be, as a result of that, a deep love in our hearts for God, for the one who has forgiven us, and for his children as well, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, it shouldn't be too difficult for the forgiven to love the forgiven. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are also forgiven. You see, it's not enough to receive forgiveness. We must experience forgiveness in our hearts. Now, you would think that's like stating the obvious. But sometimes it's not that obvious. I discovered, I discovered after 
an elder of mine had died in one of my congregations. Unknown to me, for the previous 20 years, he hadn't spoken to his brother, who was also an elder in a different church. 20 years he hadn't broken breath to him. And that, this particular elder that I'm talking about was the most, I, I would have to say, pharisaical elder I have ever come across. Every T had to be stroked, every I had to be dotted. And yet this was going on. Something had happened somewhere in the past. His nose had been put out of joint, and he couldn't forgive his brother. So let me ask you, have you experienced forgiveness? Has your heart been broken as you contemplated God's great love and God's great mercy towards you? Have you calculated your spiritual debt? Never mind your physical and material debt. Have you calculated your spiritual debt to God? It's incalculable. One of the evidences of experiencing forgiveness is the constant wonder in your heart, why should he save me? Do you remember that song of Chris Christopherson's? Why me, Lord? What have I ever done? Why me? That, that song really asks that question. Why, Lord? Are you, why have you been merciful to me? I don't deserve it. Another evidence is a tenderness towards others in spite of their sins. And one of the most effective ways God has for uh, keeping us forgiveness conscious is in our relationships with other believers. When others sin against us, how do we react? When other believers sin against us, then we must forgive them. We must forgive them, remembering that we ourselves have been forgiven. Remembering, you know, we ourselves are sinners, just like them. Okay, they got it wrong. Okay, they hurt our feelings. Get over it. You know, so many of these things, they destroy churches. They fester, and, and people's feelings get hurt, and they can't move on, and, and they forget that they have been forgiven an immense debt by God. So there's experiencing forgiveness. There's receiving forgiveness. But then thirdly, there's sharing forgiveness. Not only do we receive it and experience it in our hearts, then we must share it with others. The forgiven servant would not forgive his fellow servant. The result, he's back in prison. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the losers if we don't forgive others. We are the losers. We may think we're hurting them, but we're only hurting ourselves. 
Paul wrote, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, listen, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, verse 32. The lesson, fellow believers, is this. You cannot share forgiveness unless you have received it and experienced it. You can't share it unless you've received it and experienced it. Forgiveness must possess and transform the heart. If we don't forgive, we put ourselves in prison. There are people in ministry much longer than I've been in ministry. But I believe there's nothing that is so disruptive to the church of Jesus Christ as when professed believers carry grudges and have a non-forgiving spirit. It's like a cancer in the body. It points to a non-forgiven heart. You know, in a sense, this story seems almost incredible, doesn't it? Forgiven millions, demanding pennies. That's really what it's some, that's how you could sum it up. Someone who's forgiven millions, demanding pennies. But when you have difficulty forgiving someone for some wrong he has done you, here's what I want you to think about. Think of the debt that you owe to God. An immense debt that he has forgiven by sheer grace. Not because you deserved it, not because you're better than anyone else. By sheer grace. And compare that to the mere trifle or pence committed against you that we find so hard to forget or forgive. Is our shame for sin against God as intense and as real as our hurt at injuries done to us. I doubt it. It's like comparing millions with pence. Shame on us if we carry grudges against our fellow believers, who, after all, are just fallen creatures like ourselves. Let me finish by quoting from that passage that we read where the Lord's Prayer is given. You'd wonder, why did he read that? hope you maybe remember why I read that. The forgiven forgive. What is it we pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then it goes on, then it goes on, for if we forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, many of you were taught the Lord's Prayer when you were a child and you could recite it word for word. But it's there. It's there. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, I take this as a challenge to me I'm not just issuing this as a challenge to you. This challenges my own heart. Because there are times 
I've had situations where I have found it incredibly difficult to forgive others. But the forgiven forgive. It's, it's, it's one of the signs that you've been forgiven, that you're able to forgive. That's something for you to work on in the week ahead and the rest of your life, let me tell you. Thank you.